Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Six days, 50 games of live European football. We've had a great time at Optusport over the last week, and this week's Gagnapod is the perfect way to wrap it up. David Wiener with you once again. Thanks for your company for another big discussion about all the big talking points in football. Paul Ocon, how are you? I'm fine, mate. That's good. That's good. Big what was your highlight of the, the last couple of days? Um, I'd have to say England's two performances. I think um, uh, Gareth Southgate uh, is, is on the right track. We saw them uh, perform so well in, uh, in the last World Cup and... Uh, um, I'm really excited because, you know, for a number of years, England and international level has really um, yeah, really been disappointing. So I, I think for for football in general, it's great to see uh, England uh, doing well. And for that very reason, we don't have Michael Bridges on this week's podcast. <laughs> Mel McLaughlin, how are you? Well, thank you, Dave. Um, it's always fun coming back in. And it, yeah, heaps of games. I also enjoyed um, England and, and seeing them perform so well, but also the Netherlands-Germany games. That was Really good fun. That was probably the big fixture we were all looking forward to and it lived up to the hype. Yeah, it was probably one of the best games anywhere all season. That was fantastic. We'll touch on that shortly. And welcome for the first time to Optus Sports. So excited I've just thrown my pen lit across the table. Adriano Del Monte, radio host and European football fanatic. How are you, mate? Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Very, very well. Glad to be a part of it. Brilliant. Good to have you. Thanks for the pen, Paula. That'll help me a lot through the next <laughs> next 45 minutes or so. Guys, we'll touch on that to start with the Euro qualifiers, isn't it great like to have all these games here for us? We've never had them in the past, and you might see one game here, one game there. I've been thoroughly entertained by some of the weird and wacky stuff I've seen over the last week, not to mention some fantastic football. We'll start just talking generally, who was the most, I guess, impressive side or the standout performance? You touched on England, but what else caught, caught our eye? One's going to be boring again because knowing these topics ahead of time, or a few of them anyway, it is England because we've been looking for them to um, back up what they did. A lot of people said they got further than they probably um, deserved to at the World Cup because of a relatively easy draw, can we say, until they got really tested. But uh, there's no doubt about it. They're, come, they're coming good. Um, the Gareth Southgate is blooding all these youngsters as well. They've got plenty of depth. So uh, I just think it's a really good thing. A strong England is something that, that world football, like it or not, is, is a good thing. Certainly uh, not surprising with England. They've been exceptional across the Nations League into the finals there, one of four nations. So I'm not surprised by England. So for me, I'd have to say that the Italians, I'll put my Italy cap on for a moment, the fact that they've been essentially in international wilderness for the best part of almost 13 years now since their 2006 World Cup triumph, the fact that they've put two complete displays together, Sure, against Liechtenstein and Finland, but eight goals, two clean sheets. It's five straight clean sheets now uh, under Roberto Mancini, and they're starting to get back to their best. So I think the resurgences of Italy and, of course, Netherlands, the two powerhouse nations out of Europe 
who missed the World Cup, it is good to see some of the very best getting back to their best. That's right. And I also think the success of England and Italy has all added to the hype and the prestige of this international break. And even if you listen to some of the overseas shows who normally go, oh, we weren't looking forward to the Premier League being away, they're going, well, we enjoyed that. Well, why is that? Because England was so entertaining and, and plenty of headlines there, so they had plenty to enjoy. Paolo, are England going to win the 2022 World Cup and the 2020 Euros? Can we believe the hype? How much can we read into their 10 goals over the last couple of days? Yeah, well, I think you can take a lot from it. Um, you, know, you have a look at uh, um, you know, what Pep Guardiola has done in, in, in English football over the past couple of seasons. He did the same in Germany, and Germany won the World Cup, I believe, off, off the back of that. So... Um, just looking at that, I think there are a, they are a strong chance. And then if you look at uh, some of the young players that uh, they're blooding through at the moment, um, you know, it's certainly exciting times for England. And uh, why can't they go on and win it? I fear that they actually, they might. I think they're in a really great position and they're very exciting. Mel, you touched on last week the Gareth Southgate effect. And I, I loved his interview with Schwartz. uh after the first game, we basically said, we saw you guys when you were playing, how much you guys loved going off to your Australian camps. And that's what I'm trying to influence here. And it's amazing how he's been able to carry that on from the World Cup, even with younger players and give them the confidence to, to kick on on the big stage. We talked about it um, but during the World Cup coverage last year, didn't we, constantly about England and how they, uh, how Gareth Southgate had got them on board, got the media part right, got these players enjoying enjoying football, knowing how to just sort of be together and, and, and bond really well. And they were we're all on board and we can see that. And as you say, as you, well, as we've all said now, come along really well, starting to really impress. And, and the youngsters are also even speaking really maturely afterwards. And he's, as we know, let's face it, he's giving certain players a crack that aren't getting a crack at club football. Not that I want to give Sari another mention <laughs> at Chelsea, but that's another interesting thing too. But it's, it's hard not to be a believer uh, at this point. Well, what, what does Mauricio Sarri and Chelsea fans do when he sees Callum Hudson-Odoi do so well? Uh, he had the most chances created in their second game. Jaden Sancho had the most chances created in the first game. He goes back to club lad now and he goes back to the bench. What's the what's the read on Mauricio Sarri after he sees his success at international level? Yeah, well, obviously for Mauricio Sarri, he's got bigger issues, his own future at this point. But obviously Hudson-Odoi and all the youngsters there at England level have really proven their worth. And yes, exciting times for the future. I'm not so certain they'll be successful winning a Euro 2020 or FIFA World Cup in 22. I think they've still got some work to do. We've seen the golden generation of old fail to win any major silverware. So they've still got some strides to take, but certainly promising signs. For Sadi and his players, though, obviously now the future, there are the Bayern Munich links for Hudson-Odoi as well. So a lot of uncertainties, but be very difficult decision not to play him off the back of, well, the, the week that's been with the three lines. In fairness, it was the... In fairness, it Montenegro with respect to them it was the kind of fixture to to blood a player such exactly. as him yeah uh, and how much credit does Perth Glory get for um, when Chelsea came out and Hudson-Odoi absolutely starred but <laughs> a quick one okay I know I've mentioned Sari already but is he just the most stubborn manager he's Italian that's how they that's how they roll at that <laughs> level and if it's his way or no way he had some success at Napoli without winning a Scudetto got very close to taking the mantle off Juventus but yes that's an issue and that will be his downfall and eventually I believe he He'll, he'll be out of the post come season's end. I think also an issue for Hudson Adoy, like probably many of the uh, you know better young English talents at the at the top tier clubs, is they're up against. Well, Hudson Adoy is up against uh, Pedro, William, Hazard. I mean, they're world class players in their own right. And if he was at maybe a Bournemouth, um, a Cardiff, 
somewhere uh, else other than those big clubs. He'd probably already have 30 or 40 Premier League uh, appearances. So it's um, a decision that these young players need to, to factor in when, when they're at those big clubs, um, that they're going to get limited game time. One of the players who comes in and goes out of Sarri's side is Ross Barkley. He was a, a, a valuable addition against Montenegro in a midfield with Declan Rice and Deli Ali, And I think that's probably one of the interesting what the talking points for the England side as it evolves. We know they've got an exciting front three, but as uh, Declan Rice, who's pledged allegiance to England, does he take on that uh, number six role? And Eric Dyer and maybe Jordan Henderson perhaps are now down the picking order, and that gives them a lot of creativity and, and thrust in the middle of the park behind that amazing front three. Paolo, uh, Adriano talked about Italy before. Um, one thing I've noticed just doing a really bit of the English version of the Italian press so far is that they're buying into Roberto Mancini's attempt to reinvigorate the, the enthusiasm around the side. Um, what has the reaction been to this? Because Liechtenstein is Liechtenstein. You take what you can out of it. But some young kids have done really well and, and, and the vibe seems a lot more positive. Yeah, well, um, we all know how disappointed. I don't. I, I, I think not only myself, but everyone who loves football, the fact that uh, the Azzurri were absent uh, for, I think, probably the first time ever from, from a World Cup. So not to see that jersey feature was uh, um, was unthinkable. So... I'm not surprised that everyone's on board. Um, yeah, he's bringing in new players. He's needed to because uh, I think when you have a disastrous campaign, the, you know, the, the best way to freshen it up is to bring in some young talents and uh, Italy certainly do have them. Um, so exciting times ahead for them. Uh, they you know, haven't played two powerhouses, but the fact that they're on six points, they've, they've scored goals, uh, some young players uh, have got on, on, the, on the scoreboard and... Uh, um, you know, the Italian press can be uh, pretty negative uh, at the best of times, so it's great to see that uh, even they're supporting uh, what Mancini's doing. Uh, just a quick word on that one. The, the media in Italy can be compared very similarly to the English media and the British media, where they've actually been very negative towards the Italian national team, particularly since the success of the 2006 FIFA World Cup, and that's worked against the Azzurri really well, essentially bringing in these youngsters and taking that risk. We've seen a number of top managers fail without winning a piece of silverware since that 2006 triumph. So that change we've seen under Mancini has been well received by the Gazzetta dello Sports, Corriere dello Sports of this world. And all of a sudden, yes, 6-0 against Liechtenstein, but that's six goals and that's multiple goals in a game for a very rare occasion for Italy. So positive signs, teenagers coming through, a 36-year-old this morning who became Italy's all-time top goal scorer in Fabio Quagliarella, so a very bright future ahead. Oldest, oldest uh, scorer, which just shows that he's prepared to give youth and the most informed players a that's chance it. as well. A Germany back? What do we see enough from Germany? Do you think you talk about that game, Mel? It was, it was, a, it was absolute humdinger. If the question is at Germany, well, yeah, yes. Going to show some faith in them because you, you can't count them out for long, and we know what they're like. We've said this in the past. We know the lengths they'll go to to rebuild. If things don't end well, they start again, and they're ruthless about it. We know they're ruthless, and uh, it's reaping rewards. I don't know if that was maybe a bit of revenge as well what they did against the Dutch, but uh, yeah, if if they're down and out, it's never for long. But uh, are they back? Yeah, Joachim Lowe made some interesting changes, and they, and they paid off. And Serge Gnabry, who. Uh, you know, Tony Pulis didn't rate him at West Brom four odd years ago. Um, and Lero Sane, uh, it worked against the Netherlands. Is that the way forward for them? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, Joachim Lowe made a big statement by uh, practically, you know, ending the international careers of Thomas Muller, Boateng and, and, and Hummels. And, and he made a big statement. I think uh, his intent is to give young players an opportunity. And uh, 
it was uh, it was a bit tricky in the end. They they they, they won three two, but uh, like the game in the Nations League where they were up two uh, 0 at half time. You know, the, the Dutch come back in the second half. So I think for Germany that result is a massive boost, um, and hopefully we we see the Germans back up there again. Remember that Confederations Cup final. I know there's that Confederations Cup final curse. So you know they didn't obviously win the World Cup final, but they didn't come close. But at the time. We were calling it. People were calling it almost their their B B side, while mm. the rest of them were selling themselves on holiday around the joint, and and they looked sensational. And then the World Cup sort of threw the mentality out the window. But it was a, a different looking squad to what we saw there. So. I'll respectfully disagree. I don't think they're back at all, Germany. They they need to really build a new generation here. And you look at some of the names and the clubs they're playing at. It's not the strong German side that we're used to seeing. So I think they still have some work to do. They're very leaky in defence, which was proven by still the young up and coming. Dutch side. I'm certainly on the Dutch train there. They're playing some great football, but they're still very young and up and coming, as I said. So conceding a couple of goals again, dropping a lead, it's still a cause of concern to me. So Germany's still with some work to do after that dismal Nations League campaign. The man you know of old actually was called into uh, in that game, but the, the Dutch are going to give us some adventure over the next couple of years, I feel. Well, they're as exciting as it gets. And if you're a Dutch fan at the moment, exciting times ahead. Obviously, missing the World Cup in Russia. Two of the hottest prospects in in world football, of course, in Frankie de Jong and Matthias de Litt, both of whom could be at Barcelona next season. De Jong, of course, already official. I'm anticipating his Ajax teammate to follow. Very exciting times. But they too, they need to get some runs on the board before we can say that they're absolutely back. But that Nations League semi-finals and potential final for them in Portugal in June will be a great test to see where they're at. I think a lot of people love seeing the Dutch back, just like you say, or on the way back. Uh, work to do, but I think sort of you've sort of touched on it, the need to have, or how much is there the need to have the team or the squad playing in all the, in the biggest teams possible, in the biggest leagues possible. Same lesson for a lot of those, a lot of the nations, and that's what this generation of the Netherlands side are benefiting from. France, Paolo, can you Pick us a weakness. Can you find something? What's going to stop them? Yeah, it's they don't have any weaknesses. <laughs> um, yeah, look, I, I think the luxury that uh, France have, and, and certainly Deschamps has as a coach, uh, he's got so many players to, to choose from and, and so many world-class players. And, and you know, Mel spoke about um, the Dutch players playing uh, for uh, some of the biggest clubs in the world. Um, well, France, you look at their... Uh, Know, this, their squad and they're all at the, at the best clubs in the world so um, very difficult to to see them being knocked off uh, I think uh, the best uh, international team in the world I think the only thing to work against them is off the field it's always mental um, we saw again starting off with the World Cup as well attitude and ego and uh, I think that's the only thing they can be their own worst enemies and uh, that's this is with the, as we say the most talented squad on the planet so the only thing that's going to go against them is you know themselves if they're not on on the day if Pogba's not in the mood mm. I think that's the only thing I was a little critical of them as well in the lead up to the World Cup and look clearly they were the best team at the World Cup but they were when they want to be when they want to be is, is the point there but I think they've matured from that obviously the 2016 European final that they lost to Portugal and then of course winning that World Cup, you'd hope they've matured from that and they'll clearly be the favourite uh, going into Euro 2020. I, I think you've got to give a lot of credit to Didier Deschamps because um, 
that's not easy when you need to manage so many egos. Some egos there, some money there. Yeah. So, and you know, I, I saw a little bit of the documentary of uh, of France winning the World Cup and the way he handled certain situations. Uh, again, I, I think uh, a lot of credit has to go to him. And I also think uh, you talk about the spirit of. Gareth Southgate, this is a different type of team spirit. You've got players who actually love going to camp together. You see a lot of uh, Antoine Griezmann and Paul Pogba, the way they muck around with each other, and that can only help, and you see that translated. Probably my highlight of the entire last six days was Pogba's chip in for Griezmann to break down Moldova. Absolutely amazing. So um, you think if they've got that fun factor, that'll help their motivation when they're going and playing these these lower-ranked teams. The real world rankings, guys, the FIFA world rankings have the top 10. I'll read them out for you. But speaking of France, they're number two in the world. They're behind Belgium. Then you've got Brazil third, Croatia, England, Portugal, Uruguay, Switzerland, Spain, and Denmark. That's the top 10. Now, who should be in there? Who is missing? And we spoke about France. Has the the calculator at FIFA got the number one spot wrong? FIFA rankings for me are a complete joke. Uh, I find the the rankings baffling that the world champion of, what, eight, nine months ago, a second, although just very narrowly, 1.2 Belgium. Belgium, of course, well and truly up there, but uh, Le Bleu are certainly, for me, the best team uh, internationally in world football. Look, looking at the top 10 based on form, of course, you'd look at 10th place Denmark there and say, well, they're pretty fortunate to be amongst the top 10 nations. But I think in some way, shape or form, the top 10 have earned the right to be in there. Obviously, you could look at Netherlands in 14th and say, well, based on what they did in the UEFA Nations League, well, surely on form, they're in the best 10. But their absence from the World Cup means that there's no hope that they could actually be there. So, look, based on what we've seen at the moment, Netherlands, for me, is certainly a top 10 nation. Yes, Germany are on the way back, but 16th for now. And if I had to pick one of the big boys to remove... I think Portugal at six. I don't like what I've seen from Portugal recently. Obviously, that Ronaldo injury uh, midweek in the Nations League. A few questions to be answered. They've got a very, very tough end to the Euro 2020 qualification. They do. They're actually in a, a tricky group. Uh, they saw the, the draw with Serbia uh, the other day. And uh, even when they won the Euros, they didn't win any hearts or minds with their style of football. Third and, in their group. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I think the jury's out on them. Netherlands with a bullet. But who's the most informed side on the planet are they sitting in fifth place in england not for me no not for me i think the french are, i think the french are comfortably the best team in the world at the moment france number one uh portugal you kind of almost forget they're the defending euro mm-hmm. champions because they're not all that inspiring and i feel the same way about switzerland to be fair but we know it's the numbers yeah well those two sides switzerland and denmark with the six goal thriller this morning which i don't think any of us were expecting no. um spain in at nine i think they will be a dominant force, but this goal-scoring issue is still a problem for them. Alva Morata gets a big confidence boost this morning. Um, Brazil in third. They've got a bit of work to do at the moment. They're sorting out a few things as they head into the Copa America. Is that where their rightful position is? Yeah, if you you know, you go on the performances of Belgium and France at, uh, at the last World Cup and uh, you see... Uh, that Brazil are in third spot. I, I, I don't think they, they really deserve to be to be higher and probably can be thankful that they're, they're actually in uh, third spot. But I, I think um, when you look at uh, football over the years, uh, it's really, really, really disappointing that Italy, Holland and Germany aren't in the top ten. So as uh, Adrian pointed out, uh, all three of those teams have uh, a lot of work to do to get into the, the top ten again. Would you rather? So they're the most informed teams, but who are the most exciting? Would you rather Sancho plus Kane plus Sterling? Would you rather Giroud, Griezmann plus Mbappe? And take your pick, 
Kings the Coman at the Machinal, Blaze Matuidi. Would you prefer Dries Mertens? Take your pick, Mishi Bachuai, Romelu Lukaku, or Eden Hazard? Or would you prefer someone else? Easy one for me. I'll stick with the French. That's as good as it gets. If I had to pick a smoky, though, I really like the Polish attacking trio of, yeah, of Milik, Piontek, and Lewandowski. Very exciting for the Poles. But they've got to get the balance right in the they've execution find, of it. Absolutely. They've got to find the balance. Paolo? Yeah, look, uh, geez, some big players there. But uh, mm-hmm. how about the Brazilians with Neymar, Gabriel, Jesus, William, um, you know. Douglas Costa. Coutinho. Coutinho. Who starts Fir- up front for them, though? Firmino. Jeez. Vinicius Jr., perhaps? Yeah, they're struggling Brazil for a bit of talent, aren't they? <laughs> Either way, if it's Woodrow, right, of course it's a French. If you're going for excitement, they're the most exciting team. It's scary when they turn it on. Just to round that all out, the, the thing for England, which we started with, we'll end with it, you've got Jaden Sancho in there. It could be Marcus Ratchford. It could be Callum Hudson-Odoi. So they're spoilt for choice there, and it's, uh, well, we've got some exciting times on the international arena coming up, that is for sure. There's also Argentina with Messi... Uh, Aguero, Di Maria. Very talented, but the same Just issues for Argentina. Can they get the best out of that, though, Paolo? Um, can they well, win the Copa America? Can they re- rectify what went wrong yeah, at the absolutely. last World Cup? Absolutely, they can win it. Uh, again, a lot depends on, on Messi. Um, he's certainly a different player when he plays for Barcelona than when he plays for Argentina. I think the responsibility is just too great for him when he when he um, is representing his country, but... They have some extremely talented players, and and if it all comes together, then yeah, you 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 would think that they they can win it. Well, how is it possible to get Messi firing to that level that we used to see him do for the club that we haven't seen him at like during the World Cup? Obviously, that was a disaster. Yeah, I just think that when Argentina plays, they just everyone just constantly looks at Messi and just says, "Well, you do it." Yeah, go on. It's five minutes, and yeah, you know, we haven't scored yet. Can you go and do your stuff? Whereas Barcelona, they still they still depend on him a lot, but. They're just other players that share that responsibility alongside him. That was proven in that last World Cup qualifier in 2017, away to Ecuador, the Messi hat-trick. That was crazy. That pulled them, they conceded within the first minute, then it was a Messi hat-trick, which single-handedly took them to Russia. The over-reliance on Messi is a massive issue for Argentina, and questions will need to be asked sooner or later. Do we move on, or do we continue to try find a way? Because they've got so close, but they're still yet to win anything with him there. Maybe the Copa America, but... I've got Brazil on top there on home soil. I think he'll be there in 2022. And interestingly, they started Laturo Martinez from Inter Milan mm. in their recent games as well. So they're still trying to figure out who is the who is the man. To, they've tried Higuain, they've tried Dybala, they've tried plenty of players. So we'll see how that plays out. One of those star members, Raheem Sterling, it's been a big season for him. Not just a big week, but a big season. He obviously took the uh, stranglehold there with the racist abuse that he copped um, from the Montenegro fans and was very vocal and very proactive alongside with Callum Hudson-Odoi and Danny Rhodes in taking a stand on that. His stature over the last year has just gone to the next level. They're talking Ballon d'Or conversations here. Is he in the frame? Not for me. Not for me. Not in the top three for me. He's in the frame if we're talking a finalist, but not in the top three just yet. A lot will be dependent on what Manchester City can do domestically and in the Champions League. Should City go on and win it all? He has to be in the frame. His goal-scoring record, the assists he's provided, the quality, and a potential UA for Nations League with England, sure. But there are a lot of ifs there for me at this point. I have a few other players. Yeah. Slightly so who is number three? If we're assuming that Ronaldo and Messi are still the stranglehold on the other two positions, we've seen Neymar, we've seen Antoine Griezmann, we've seen Kylian Mbappe, we've seen Luka Modric has the stranglehold on it. Um, who is, if we including Ronaldo and Messi, who is that number three at the moment? I've got Mohamed Salah. 
I think that Liverpool, a similar position Still to now. City at the moment. They've got the obviously the Premier League, which I'm tipping City will win, but also still alive in the Champions League against Porto in the quarterfinals. And also, uh, Mohamed Salah has the African Cup of Nations on home soil as well. If he can win for Egypt and something for Liverpool, I have him as the number three this season. If Raheem Sterling is not in the frame, at least in the broader frame, he'd have to be, as you say, Adriano is on his way. Um, but if he's not, he's going to be sometime soon because it was that pressure, uh, so many question marks, and not every player can really stand up and respond when it's like, well, what's he done for his country? And he's really led the way and, and he's you know flying left, right and centre in terms of scoring for club and country. Who's on your podium? Yeah, look, I, I don't have a number three, and I think if you're looking for a number three, then it's only because you're bored that <laughs> it's always Messi and Ronaldo. I, look, I, I just think that both of them, what they do, what they're doing right now, and and what they've done in the past, it, it's it's phenomenal. When you think the pressure that these guys are on, they deliver every weekend or almost every weekend, and they they constantly. Uh, are competing against each other. Ronaldo goes and scores a hat-trick, so Messi on the weekend, he goes and does exactly the same. Um, And it's impossible, impossible to think that anyone other than those two um, can be a serious candidate to to, to win it. You're still seething over the fifth-place finish. Yeah, look. (laughs) (laughs) That's unbelievable fifth-place, Messi. Do you think this season, Paul, that the Ballon d'Or will be determined if it is between Ronaldo and Messi up to who wins the UEFA Champions League? Yeah, I think that, um, probably that that will uh, decide who, who will win it. I, I think, um, yeah, that look, you know, Messi scoring 650. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Goals. Ronaldo scoring eight hat-tricks in Champions League. Um, He single-handedly won that match or or got Juventus through to to the quarterfinals. Um, I, I can't see or I don't see any other player other than those two, that's capable of doing that consistently. If Manchester City do go into win, let's say, treble, even the quadruple, Raheem Sterling will have been at the heart of that. He's been there the whole way through. You know, Even De Bruyne, Silva, they've had injury troubles this year. I can't think how he cannot be in the frame. Mm. But that's one discussion. The other discussion, Mel, is the social responsibility he has taken on. And not only just the, the rise when you talk about the way he spoke around the World Cup, about his journey, how he started to speak back about against the tabloids who are criticising him for his bling and he's talking about his journey where he used to clean toilets with his mum and now he's buying her properties and how can you perceive me like that to what to what he did in Montenegro. Um, he's a really becoming a really influential figure in the game, period. Yeah, really influential, really respected as well by obviously I think the broader, you know, football fan group, England fans as well, of course. But, you know, the younger plays, it's a great place for, as we talked about Southgate and the, um, you know, the setup they've got there. But it's great to have certain players such as himself leading the way because he certainly has become a leader. He's certainly leading by example as well with the way he spoke. We know there's a huge issue 
of racism in the game, but you know they're very quick to talk about. It's not just Montenegro; we see it in England as well, and he's lived that, which is you know it's disgusting. It's something that's a problem in the world. Um, but yeah, it's great to just see if this is setting the standard. If these are the role models, that's brilliant. And he's had the ability to bite back with really mature social yes. media posts. They all spoke really yeah. well. These young yeah. kids as well, Hudson and Doys, the way they spoke, maturity well beyond his years. And it's also forced the English press to take a look at themselves as well and the Absolutely. way they cover things, not just with him, but the way, uh, you know, glass houses and all that, looking at what happened in Montenegro, making sure that the coverage there is more mature going forward and as well. I feel like that's a change as well. They, All the British media wasn't quick to just go, Montenegro, terrible, all racist. A lot of them are going, well, hang on a minute, well, we can't say anything what well, we can but we need to acknowledge that it's here as well you know gareth southgate uh he was he's saying i'm a you know i'm a white guy trying to talk about this uh, i can't relate but i just want my players to enjoy the football i yeah. just want them to be able to enjoy and Callum hamilton adoy and danny rose are very impressive as well just lastly i mean what does uefa do to montenegro do you is it enough to you know have them playing behind a uh, empty stadium is that gonna is that the adequate punishment do you have to strip points do you have to ban them from the Euro qualifying. I mean, how hard do they have to get here to get this message across? It's a tough one. You see this at club level as well, across multiple competitions. You give them a stadium ban or a points deduction, it's not necessarily going to end this significant issue in society. So I think some stand needs to be taken here, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure if they will actually enforce a points deduction. Look, perhaps a game or two behind closed doors will be the eventual outcome, but there is a lot more work, and that's why I'm very impressed by the British media and their maturity in handling the situation. They are the actions, small steps, that will eventually resolve a much bigger issue, and I think that the, the rest of the world's media should take a lead and follow along that path. It's very impressive, and I think ultimately these small steps will see the English players bringing it back to the football actually maximise their potential on the pitch and really galvanise together as one. There's a real change in the air, I think, mm. in, in with this. And where do you start and where do you stop? Closed doors, do you do that to Chelsea? Do you, you exactly. know, when there's stuff that goes exactly. on there, it's a bigger thing. But I, I don't know, the hard line approach, the harder the better and just, you know, keep going with the change. Mm. As lines across, someone's got to be the brave governing body to make that call, to make that stand. Rightio, then give us an answer. Okay, it's time to run through a range of different topics. <laughs> we'll start off with, it's a big, big moment for Tottenham. Mel, Tottenham's new stadium, Will? I'm not good at the one word. We know this. (laughs) I'll say it every time. But it's set a standard. It's, you know, I think we've all seen it already, pictures of it. We know there was the the test mat, the first test game there, test event. They needed over 25,000, which they got for an under-18s game. Uh, Janelle Bennett, it'll be surely somewhere, it'll be a trivia night question, the first goal scorer at the new stadium. But it just looks spectacular. It's there for the uh, the fans, everything down to f- quick pouring beer. Yeah. You know, it's got, <laughs> it's got absolutely everything, um, you know, the atmosphere as well, the noise. Pochettino said he went there and he, he cried, so can't ask much more than that. They got rid of the cheese room, which I'm sure is disappointing for all the for all the high class Spurs fans that were hoping to get that. But they're going to have the biggest bar in Europe, run a, run alongside one of the goal lines, um, and some of the numbers that come out of it. Um, but they can turn an, turn it into an NFL pitch within 25 mm. minutes, um, and it costs one billion dollars to build, one billion pounds to build, and they've got a hotel in the stadium as well. So it's really world class for Spurs. 
I wonder how their fans will go. They've constructed it to try and create like a Borussia Dortmund yellow wall at one end in terms of atmosphere. So they're almost going to have double the stadium capacity that they had at White Hart Lane. It'll be interesting to see what kind of furnace they can, fortress they can build there. If only we could have that kind of money <laughs> for those kind of stadiums. But it's nice that they're also, you know, there's tributes everywhere to, you know, White Hart Lane and, you know, in terms of colours, in terms of just little touches left, right and centre. So history is always remembered, which is so important. Yep. Moving back from Wembley to there, it'll be interesting to see how they transition compared to some of the other clubs like West Ham moving to the Olympic Stadium and so on. Yeah, I think Spurs will be right at home. The statement that there will be no promotion or relegation in Australia until 2034 was... Was surprising, given that uh, I think the views of uh, nearly everyone in Australia at the moment is that... Uh, um, the quicker promotion relegation comes in, uh, the better it is for Australian football. I'm I'm not sure that I agree that the quicker it comes in, it's for the better. Um, I think at some stage, absolutely, but uh, um, I do think that the A League's sort of that needs to get sorted out, um, and uh, a professional second division, second tier, is probably I think the most important thing, and then after that, uh, promotion relegation. It was a bit classic the way it played out with the chairman making statements at a at a seminar or a, a, a weekend away. The fellow board members then distanced themselves from that, and then the roof body put out a statement clarifying it. That's a bit classic. I think the truth, what it probably should have been communicated, was that the current clubs have an agreement through till twenty thirty four, and then what we work on in the background uh, is what we what we're working on. But um, just the whole comedy of the way that played out was all a bit un- unfortunate. And people jumping on that really quickly. So, yeah, the legalities are 2014, they got a 20-year licence, but people, because there's so much talk and it is certainly what the game needs, um, you know, there's the outrage. We, we, we love a good outrage. But, you know, legally it's... It's correct. It's just not what is required for the health of the league. So we need, you know, this new league's working group um, to get on board and say, okay, let's do it earlier. Yeah, we'll see what happens. Let's hope it's not 15 years. That's a very long time to wait. (laughs) Juventus without Cristiano Ronaldo in the Champions League would be? Fine. They'll be fine. They'll be fine. I've heard a few experts out there suggest that no Ronaldo, no Juventus. I'll have to respectfully disagree, not for the first time this show. But look, I think that Cristiano Ronaldo has been brought in, yes, to deliver Champions League success to a Juventus side who have not won one for 23 long years. But they have other attacking players in Paulo Dybala, Bernadeschi, who has really come of age of late. Moise Keane with his exploits recently for both club and country. Mario Mandzukic, who continues to be one of the best number nines in world football. I think they'll be fine. Ajax were gallant. They were superb against Real Madrid. But this Juventus side are at a completely different level with all due respect to the current Real Madrid squad. And Juventus have been building for this. And with or without him, they'll do enough over the two legs. But I actually believe he'll be fit for that first leg anyway. Hence, I think the question will be void. Well, of course he will be because he told us all on social media. That's but right. surely if you're actually looking at a team without CR7 and you're thinking, well, this is a boost. Yeah, look, I think the further, the further that you go in the competition, the tighter the games become. Hence why players like... Messi and Ronaldo become even more important because they can just come up with it by themselves at a time in the game where you think um, that it's impossible. Um, and, and we saw Ronaldo's uh, goals against Atletico Madrid. There's no one in the world that can score those goals other than him. And there are other goal scorers around. It's just that they, at that right moment, th- they decide the game. So I, 
I, to a certain point, I think that Juventus um, is not only Ronaldo, but in Champions League, at, in those important moments that, that decide games, I think without Ronaldo, they, they will struggle. Having said that, though, Paul, two finals in the last four seasons without him and two very, very narrow eliminations as well. They know how to get it done. They've got a, a manager who's been able to get them Close, but not just there just yet. And I think against Ajax, I don't think they'll have any headaches whatsoever, but feel free to pull this one out of the archives <laughs> in a couple of weeks if they do go out. Hamstring watches on for the next two weeks. <laughs> no doubt about that. Mel, if Chelsea do not win their appeal over their transfer ban, they are... I'm prepared to be shot down here, but I would say they should be fine. They'd want to be fine when you consider the amount of plays and the the quality of plays they have on loan that they should be able to turn to. I think it's 39 at the moment. Yes, a lot of them are young. A lot of them are really big names playing elsewhere. And I know that that rule's coming in to, to change that, to reduce that number, but they make a ridiculous amount of money on their, you know, through their academies and through the amount of plays they have on loan, as we all know. Um, so they <laughs> just tap into a few of those. For, it, it sounds simplistic, but it should really be that simple. They've got some really big names. Just just bring them in. Well, what's the point of the factory if you're not actually going to use any of Absolutely. them? But uh, look, they, the April 11 is the day where they find out whether they are going to have that two-transfer window ban. The interesting thing there is where Real Madrid and Barcelona got that grace period while they appealed to go and basically splurge and Barcelona went on that rampant signing spree. Chelsea haven't got that. So this will come into play very interestingly as Bayern Munich continue to probe for Hudson-Odoi and uh, Real Madrid keep coming in for Eden Hazard particularly and uh, he's off contract as well. So... Awkward times for Maurizio Sarri, uh, no matter what happens. The Oli Roos. The Oli Roos' role in Australian football and the, their importance in Australian football is... Uh, of massive importance. Um, look, I think, uh, um, you know, the fact that for a number of years now we've struggled at uh, youth level to um, to qualify for, uh, for tournaments... Um, is for me no surprise, having worked in in the in that uh, area for a, for a number of years, and uh, it's something that uh, we seriously need to uh, um, to sort out. So the guy, the team had three wins: Cambodia, two wins, sorry, Cambodia, Chinese Taipei, and a draw with South Korea. They will progress to the next level of qualifying. Uh, Palo, you've walked in Graham Arnold's shoes as it is right now. You've dealt with the challenges of underage uh, international football. Um, how difficult is that environment to get the best? out of these young players in that production line that we so desperately need? Yeah, look, I don't, uh, I don't believe that uh, our players aren't good enough. I think that uh, um, for a number of years, our preparation going into um, these sort of uh, um, tough environments um, hasn't been anywhere near what uh, is expected to be able to, to seriously uh, compete to qualify. Um, you know, going into Asia... Um, you know, you have to, you have the travel, you have uh, the heat and humidity, um, and lack of preparation um, really does, um, you know, set you behind uh, the eight ball. And you know, we would have uh, young Socceroo camps, and I would have players that would play more friendly games in a week of a young Socceroo camp than what they would play in their whole A League preseason. Now, we all know how important it is for any player to get regular game time. Can you imagine for young players who are developing who need to go into an international tournament in Asia in difficult conditions? So I always said for me as a young soccer coach, I didn't care 
how often I had the players, even if I had them for a week before a big tournament to prepare, as long as they were physically ready, they were playing enough games to be able to sustain um, uh, the workload um, of what international tournaments give you, then I was happy. But that was that was never possible. So it's something that uh, has been an issue for a number of years and it's still uh, we still haven't found a, a solution for it. Hence why... I think the quicker a professional second division comes in, it'll give uh, those players the opportunity who aren't playing regular A-League to get regular football. It's it's ama- It's well done to Graham Arnold and the Ollie Roos that they've obviously advanced to the final stage of qualification. It's going to be, I don't want to be a buzzkill, it's going to be really hard, isn't it? A couple of questions for you, Paolo. How you would manage it? Firstly, interesting that a couple of players post-game um, after this draw made the comment specifically saying we're so grateful that we got that week in Malaysia together to, you know, acclimatise as well. And, and they said it did them wonders, which, you know, given the controversy beforehand between Arnie, Muskie, you know, um, you're not always going to get such pointed remarks, I guess. But uh, it's going to be really tough. So January next year, final stage of qualification ahead of Tokyo. There's obviously the balance with the A-League. Um, I just want to know what you think of that um, and how you get that balance because obviously they're out of those games and the controversy that's going to come with that, but also how difficult it's going to be with the likes of, you know, China, South Korea, Thailand. We know Japan's there. They're obviously the host nation as well, but this is not going to be easy. No, absolutely not. It's not going to be easy. Um, you know, there's a, uh, a number of games in a short space of time. And again, I, I, I come back to that physical aspect. If players are not uh, going into these tournaments battle-hardened, um, they've got minutes in their legs, it's, it's impossible because you're up against teams that are throwing a lot of money in preparation yeah, for, these, for these tournaments. Yeah, and you, you mentioned China, but the, you know, even the minnows or the so-called minnows years ago, like Vietnam, are... are th- uh, you know, just pumping money into youth development, um, and for us, it's it's seriously a a, a big issue. And uh, you know, having coached in the A League as well, I, I know the difficulties um, that you face when you lose uh, players to uh, to international football. But um, yeah, we all complain when they don't qualify. Um, yet, yeah, there are reasons as to. Um, as to why, because again, I don't think it's because we're not good enough. I, I, I can't accept that. Um, I, I think we certainly are. Um, the Oli Roos have, have, have proven that in the past week uh, with uh, their performances and results. And I'm 100% certain, given the right preparation, that we, that we should qualify for the next Olympics. If you had a wish list when you were coach, or if you could uh, pick what Graham Arnold would need, what would that be to put us in the best position to get there? Because at the same time, you know, there's club coaches. He was spoke about Kevin Muscat's comments last week, where they're saying it's disrespecting the A League. But the, the other hand, if we're not respecting the process of playing in Asia, then we're never going to be right in that sense either. Yeah, but if we have international breaks during the A League, I, I, I don't see how we're not respecting the A-League. We've got international breaks like all over the world. There was international football the past six days, so why is it any different f- for for us in Australia? I, that, I thought that that was the, the, the idea of having international breaks. I, I, I think um, what we don't have anymore is a calendar for, for our, our national teams. Um, so we, we know already um, who we're playing, when we're playing in these international breaks, and I think um, leading up to the qualifiers, that's something that... Uh, 
is extremely important is that they, they get games as a, as a national team. How big is the connection between Oli Roo's success and going to the Olympics and that transition onwards? We've seen, obviously, back in your day, a, a wonderful uh, gradu- pool of graduates. Um, but are we making, is this as important as we're making out if they don't get to the Olympics? Or what is the connection in, in your mind between that graduation and, and kicking on? Yeah, look, I don't think if, if you don't go to the Olympics, it doesn't mean that you can't become a soccerer or you can't play in Europe or become a, um, you know, a world-class player. But I, I certainly think it gives you that experience. Um, we all know at, at these big tournaments that there are always scouts and, and, and clubs uh, looking at, at uh, the next stars coming through. So, um, you know, that's basically where you get your, your, uh, um, your soccer root players or your national team players through the junior national team ranks. Um, so I, I do think it's important, but it doesn't mean if we don't qualify that, uh, um, you know, that we're not going to see uh, you know, players come through. Yeah, interesting times. We wish the other is the best of luck. We wish Graham Arnold the best of luck. We would love to get back on that stage. I think it's been 10 years since we were, we were there, and that is always a better sign for the future if we are. Just sticking to the Socceroos theme. Oh, here's a good yarn. This is a lovely yarn. It's about a seven-year-old cancer patient in the US who was watching the World Cup with her family and fell head over heels for Aaron Moy when she was watching the Socceroos. She then found out, she went on the internet and found out he played for Huddersfield and went on and ordered his jersey and the family became supporters. And then from there, the club saw that on social media and have invited her over to the UK and she'll be a guest at their game against Leicester next month. How, how good is this story? This is just wonderful. It's what we love about football. Yeah, we love these stories, don't we? And um, I, I saw that as well. Um, her name's Bella, mm-hmm. and she loves him also because her form of cancer is a form of brain cancer where, you know, there's hair loss there. So she saw this, like, this pale guy playing football <laughs> starring, and, he's, and she's saying he looks like me. So that was, the, I, I guess, the starting point there. So it's just, just beautiful. And, you know, Aaron's a lovely, lovely guy, so it's just Look forward to the vision of that. Yeah, the Aussie Iniesta, and he's inspiring in all ways, shapes, or forms with that hairstyle, and it just shows you the influence you can have even when you don't realise it, and and, and it happens in all sorts of walks of life as well, Adriana. It absolutely does. We've seen another example this week of this. There's, I'm not exactly sure of the location, but uh, an individual who was uh, caught up in what should have been, according to reports, a certain tragedy uh, on a on a school bus. A bus driver actually confiscated the phones of of a school bus everyone that was on it and and had tied the individuals up and and a a brave young boy just 13 years of age uh, was pretending he was praying in Arabic but was actually on the phone to his father at the time in the end avoided the tragedy caught the attention of Paulo Dybala who is this player's uh, who is this uh, young child's favourite player and Dybala has promptly responded to to the youngster and has also invited him to watch a match uh, in Italy with his family to watch Juventus uh, next month as well so great feel-good stories obviously as well closer to home we've seen the power of football this year as well and what it can do so we love them and I'm glad that was my first yarn that I've enjoyed here in the Optus Sports Studio. Yeah, yeah. I think also it shows you um, the good side of social media. Yes, mm, absolutely. Without it this is not possible, um, and we all know how cruel and nasty sometimes social, more often, quite often, social media can be and is. Um, but certainly, uh, it brought the attention of Dybala and, and Huddersfield, who um, have made this incredible gesture to, to fly the family over and actually meet Aaron and uh, and have the experience of uh, of watching him play. And Pella, as a coach, what does it do for the players? These sort of experiences. Oh, it's it's. Inc- 
it's invaluable. You you, you mm. can't put a price on it. Um, and you know we're, we're in uh, modern day here, and and we're only talking earlier about racism and you know, mm. you know people questioning the colour of someone's skin as to you know can they be successful and and you know earning big money being a football star, and then we see a, a young girl who's very very sick and uh, has the opportunity to to meet uh, someone who. Um, she can see herself in and, and relate to, which is uh, which is fantastic. Absolutely brilliant. Absolutely. The power of social media, it can be negative, but it also brings fans much closer to their heroes, and that can be really powerful. Well, after so much European football, the Premier League returns this weekend, and while Liverpool are two points clear, Manchester City are obviously a game behind, and they kick off the round on Saturday night at 11.30 at Fulham. Fulham versus Manchester City. Fulham in a terrible way down the bottom of the table in that relegation race and the weekend bubbles along to climax at 2.30 Monday morning with Liverpool at home to Tottenham Hotspur. So we're back with a bang. The Premier League doesn't do Premier League doesn't do things by halves. This is quite incredible. Liverpool have been off in Dubai um, sunning themselves, getting themselves ready. Mohamed Salah's had a rest. That's why he's apparently coming back all guns blazing. Um, Liverpool versus Tottenham Paolo. Big yeah, game. Look, you'd, you'd have to think Liverpool at home but... Uh um, matches after international duty are always a headache for for coaches because uh, yeah you, you know they've they've had the the loading of, of playing um, you know what food have they been eating um, you know has have they been training enough uh, then you have the travel um, so I think Pep Guardiola has always spoken about that that's his worst nightmare is um, fingers crossed that his players come back with that energy to to perform. Um, you know, in, in the competition that weekend. It's a massive matchup to have as well, where you're basically getting your players in cold mm. as well. So what's the, can you, can you see anyone see Fulham being a banana skin for Manchester City? Well, are they going to be top of the table when, when Liverpool play this massive top four game? Based on form, surely not. Obviously, the City have won the last seven against Fulham across all competitions. Fulham can't win to save themselves and the worst defensive record in the competition. So I think we're certainly anticipating a City win. Pressure will be back on Liverpool to ensure that they can get the points there. I'm particularly excited about Sadio Mane's return from international duty. Another couple of goals, uh, one in a friendly this morning and one in the final African Cup of Nations qualifying rounds just to ensure that his nation finished top of their group. Can his incredible form continue? I'd go as far as saying he's in as good a form as any player on the planet at the moment. So I think he'll be a decisive factor yet again for Liverpool, but certainly the pressure is on the Reds. And whichever way you look at it, what a ridiculously exciting time to be returning to the Premier League. You know, uh, number one, uh, I guess the you know the winners still to be decided, the top four to be decided, the relegation battle. It's just it's, it's scary and nerve wracking everywhere you look. And Sadio Mane, if you take penalties out, I believe is the top scorer in the Premier League. It's caught the attention of Zizou, who has apparently made him target number one over Eden Hazard. But it depends which paper you read. You read another paper, it's Raheem Sterling. You read another paper, it's N'Golo Kante. So uh, we'll be going through those every week, I reckon, until he does make his first signing. Other games, the two o'clock kickoff on Saturday night. It's a, a Host of games, Brighton have Albion against Southampton, Burnley against Wolves, Crystal Palace against Huddersfield, Leicester City against Bournemouth, Manchester United against Watford. I'm not going to say I didn't get the job during the international break. Everyone said that would happen, so watch this space. 4.30 West Ham versus Everton. And then on Monday morning, just after midnight, Cardiff City host Chelsea. Guys, thank you very much for your time today. Adriano, great to have you in. Thank you for having me, guys. Mel, Paolo, good fun as always. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Oh, okay. Thanks, I hope Dave. it was. I hope it was. <laughs> We're just listening to you. No, it was um, fun as all. Good stuff. And to everyone else out there, recover after all that European football. And until next time, as always, enjoy your football.